You can open your Bibles up with me to Revelation chapter 11, and we'll be starting in verse 15. That's where we came to last week. And we're going to get through chapter 11 and then most of the way through chapter 12. So if you were here on Thursday night, I said we were going to get through all of chapter 12. Plans have changed, and we're just going to take through chapter 12, verse 12. So we'll get most of the way through that. Let's look at Revelation 11:15. We'll see that this verse and the rest of chapter 11 is the sounding of the seventh angel. And it really leads into the sounding of the seventh angel. And I want you to remember that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be finished. We saw that back in chapter 10, verse 7. In the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, that is the seventh trumpet judgment, the mystery of God would be finished. The sounding of this seventh angel will usher in the days in which the mystery of God comes into its full completion. And so we'll be seeing that the rest of the book of Revelation, the unfolding of these days, this time period. Now let's read Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. And that brings us to the end of chapter 11. Back up in verse 15, these loud voices in heaven are reminding us that things are moving towards completion. They say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what it'll look like in the end. He'll reign forever and ever. And if you remember, way back in the letter to Thyatira, in chapter 2 of Revelation, Jesus promised the overcomers, quote, power over the nations. That's Revelation 2.26. He's taken back what was his to begin with. The human race forfeited the title deed to the earth, when Adam fell and sinned. And they forfeited that title deed to the earth to Satan. And currently Satan rules this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And at this point, Jesus is going to be taking back what is rightfully his, what he has purchased with his blood. And he'll reign forever and ever. And he's going to allow us to reign with him. That's pretty cool. 
This is really exciting news for his children. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. In Revelation chapter 1, way back, many, many weeks back, Jesus identified himself using this same phrase, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And now we see um, these 24 elders use this phrase in addressing God. This confirms the deity of Jesus Christ. It equates the one who was, who is, and who is to come, Jesus, and God, the Father. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. And we talked about it last week, but the mystery of God is the delay. Why has it taken so long in our eyes for God to act, for him to take back what is his? Why? That is the mystery of God that's coming to completion at this time. But at this point, he will take his great power and reign. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. Now, verse 18 acts as sort of an outline for us for the entire rest of the book of Revelation. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. These events falling in order in Revelation. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So, spoiler alert, that's what we're going to be seeing for the rest of the book of Revelation. In verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the Ark of His Covenant was seen in His temple. This is the real Ark of the Covenant that's being seen in the temple in heaven. This is not the earthly Ark of the Covenant, which was but a shadow of the real deal. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So we see that this heavenly scene brings about these earthly ramifications. What happens in heaven has an effect on the earth. Now, we'll break into chapter 12. In verses 1 and 3 of chapter 12, John says that signs appeared in heaven. And this word for signs means symbol or wonder. He's explicitly telling us that this vision he's about to record is a symbol. And by the way, this is the first time he uses this word in Revelation. Most of what's in Revelation should be taken literally, because that's how it was intended. This chapter 12 and into 13 and 17, to name a few, will be symbols, and we'll talk about them, address them as such. There is, however, a closely related word in the first verse of the book 
Um, but that one is translated more accurately as indicated instead of symbol. Since this chapter is symbolic, it's no surprise that there are many different interpretations of what these symbols represent. And there's some confusion attached to this chapter, and I would go so far as to say it's probably one of the most misunderstood chapters in Revelation. And it doesn't have to be that hard. If we just take it for what it is and look at the Bible itself as the best commentary for itself. The Bible gives us a lot, a lot to work with. And there are themes that are started earlier in the Bible that are finished or wrapped up in Revelation. So we'll look at some of those to inform our interpretations. We're going to see several personages represented in this vision in chapter 12. We'll see the red dragon, the woman, a male child, stars of heaven, Michael, the archangel, and a remnant of Jews. And we'll look at a couple of these right now and then take a few as we come to them. The dragon is by far and away the easiest one to identify. And that's because verse 9 tells us very plainly that the great dragon is that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So verse 9 spells it out for us in black and white. This great fiery red dragon is Satan. And verse 9 also equates Satan with the devil and that serpent of old referring to the Garden of Eden. So all of these personages in scripture are wrapped up and John says, hey, this is the same entity. The male child is also easy to identify. Though his identity is not explicitly stated like the dragon's. The wording in verse 5, when describing the child, is taken almost directly from Psalm 2, verse 9. We also see that this wording, ruling with a rod of iron, two other times in Revelation. We saw it in Revelation 2.27, again in the letter to Thyatira, and we'll see it in Revelation 19.15 and both, of course, referring to Jesus Christ. We know for certain that the one to rule with a rod of iron is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The identification of this child as Jesus also helps tremendously in the identification of the woman. So let's read chapter 12 through verse 6. We'll get a good chunk of this, and we'll see this woman come up. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, 
to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This woman is with child. There are a few thoughts as to the identity of this woman. Some have identified her as Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this line of thinking is just, well, she's with child, with Jesus. So obviously she's the mother of Jesus, Mary. However, there are problems with this. In verse 6, it says that after she gave birth, she fled into the wilderness to seek refuge. That doesn't quite fit. And at the end of the chapter, we'll see the woman pictured in the Great Tribulation. And of course, Mary is not in the Great Tribulation. So there are some problems with seeing this woman as Mary. Some others will say that this woman represents the church. And there are problems with this view as well. First, the church didn't give birth to Christ. Rather, Christ gave birth to the church. And so we can't, can't make this woman the church. That view gets it all backwards. But there's another problem. The church is supposed to be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin. We've got a problem if this chaste virgin is pregnant. This woman cannot be the church. And unfortunately, this has actually been a very popular position over the last several hundred years. And the idea that the church has superseded Israel in God's plan has caused too much suffering and death, to be quite honest. This position actually has a name and it's called replacement theology. And it's this teaching that since Israel rejected her Messiah in Jesus, God has put aside Israel and will now continue to deal with the church for the rest of history. Um, And unfortunately, the natural outworkings of this thought is anti-Semitism. If you think that God is done with Israel and that they've just completely failed him, which sure, they've failed him plenty of times, but he's not done with them. If you want some homework for this week, read Romans 9, 10, and 11. This deals with the relationship between God, Israel, and the church. And you'll see that surely he has not cast them away Uh, But we know that Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks in his book, in chapter 9, is the finalization of God's plan with Israel. He will work with them again. God has not cast them away, and he's not finished working with them. But where we live today, in the 21st century, God is dealing with the church. And we are very fortunate that we live in this nation, for one, but even in this time period in history. 
the thought that the church has replaced Israel indefinitely is wrong and it's dangerous. So be aware of that. This woman is not the church. This woman represents the nation of Israel. Verse 1 in chapter 12 describes this woman as being clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And since we know that the Bible is the best commentary on itself, we can actually turn back to Genesis 37, and we can get some insight into what these stars and the sun and the moon represent. In Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers hated him because he was the favorite kid, naturally. But Joseph, it's funny because you would think if they already hated him, he wouldn't tell them the dream that he had about them bowing down to him because that wouldn't do any wonders for their relationship. But he tells them, and they got even more mad with him, as we would expect. Well, Genesis 37.9 reads that he dreamed still another dream. And again, he told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now his father, Israel, who is Jacob's name after he wrestles with God, His father hears his dream, and he actually interprets it for us, and he kind of tells us what it means. So he told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? He rebuked him, but then he interpreted his dream for him. And at the very end of this little passage in verse 11, it says, And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. What is the matter? The matter is that his brothers and he and his mother would bow down before him at some point in the future. And we know, having the entire record, that this happened in Egypt during that famine. So yes, Joseph dreamed these 12 stars, the sun and the moon, the 11 stars mentioned in Genesis are Joseph's brothers, and he is the 12th. The sun is Israel. This woman in chapter 12 of Revelation is adorned with the 12 stars that are the 12 tribes of Israel. The sons of Jacob slash Israel would grow into what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. So it seems pretty apparent that the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that this woman is Israel, the nation of Israel. Verse 2 Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Jesus Christ, this child, was incarnated. He was brought into the world 
through the nation of Israel. And they are the people that God chose to bring this Messiah into the world. Now, why did God choose Israel? Why didn't he choose Rome or the Parthians or the Persians or any other Egypt, any other great nation of the world? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9 tells us why God chose Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. God chose Israel because his glory could be showcased through them. Nobody was coming along and saying, well, they only defeated the Amorites because their armies were so great because they had so many people to fight their battles. They were the least of all people, of all nations. And God chose to bring the Messiah through this nation. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. Verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Now, remember, we've already identified this red dragon as Satan. This dragon is depicted here as having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And this imagery of the horns is also used in the prophecy in Daniel 7. And we will see this dragon again in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. And we'll actually wait until then to talk about the seven heads, ten horns, and diadems. Um, Maybe chapter 13 might wait even until 17. We'll see how that works out. But these diadems, diadem is a very specific word in the Greek. Um, In contrast to Stephanos, which is another word for crown, But Stephanos was a garland, like a prize in a game. If you think of a classical Olympic athlete winning a race or something, they were given this garland, usually a wreath of some sort, some kind of vegetation, and it would be placed on their head as a sign that they've won something. Diadem is a different Greek word for crown, a diadem is a crown of a ruler, something given to someone in a place of authority. So this is the type of crown that this dragon is wearing on his heads. In verse four, it says, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And in verse nine, we see that Satan was cast to the earth. And his angels were cast with him. 
Revelation 9.1 speaks of a star as a personage holding the key to the abyss. In the letters to the seven churches, stars were spoken of as the messengers of those churches. Again, personages. And Job 38.7 equates stars with the sons of God, a.k.a. angels. In Isaiah 14, Satan proclaims that he will exalt his throne, quote, above the stars of heaven, also referring to his fellow angels. And so we can take this third of the stars that the dragon drew with him to be the angels that fell with Satan. And this seems to fit quite well. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, the angels falling with Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And this scene pictures the dragon in anticipation. He's waiting for the birth of this child waiting for that moment so he can destroy that child, God's chosen one. He wants so desperately to thwart the plan of God bringing the Messiah into the world. He knows that he, if he can stop the Messiah from coming, he has won. His plans have superseded God's plans. And from the very beginning, Satan has had a plan to thwart the plans of God. You can actually look at the narrative of the Bible through the lens of Satan's attempts to foil God's plans. And that's an intriguing study. You can see how Satan's plans change throughout history to match what he thinks God is going to do next. But Satan always comes up one step short. And we see that time and time again throughout this narrative. From the beginning, Cain kills his brother Abel. The fallen angels polluting the genetics of the human race. And the war against the line of David. Satan trying to shut down the bloodline from which he knew the Messiah had to come even through the New Testament. After Jesus was brought into the world, Herod wiping out all of the male children in the area, Jesus escapes deadly circumstances on more than one occasion. And finally, the cross. Satan thinks, man, I've got him this time. We have finally overtaken the Messiah. Psalm 22 describes these great bulls of Bashan that surrounded Christ as he hung on the cross, their mouths gaping, ready to devour. But what Satan thought to be his greatest victory would soon turn into his greatest defeat. When Jesus rose three days later, he conquered the death and he conquered the grave He defeated Satan, and he fulfilled his role as Messiah. 
But even after Satan was defeated there, he still presses into the people of God. Why does he still press against us, war against us? I don't think it's just because he's a maniac. And sure, he's a maniac. But I think that he has a reason for pressing into the church, but even more specifically, the Jews. And even more specifically than that, believing Jews. He has a reason. Part of Hosea 5.15 has not yet been fulfilled. And I'll read that for you real quick. You don't have to turn there. It says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Talking about believing Jews. The last part of that has not been fulfilled. The Jews have not turned back to Christ yet. A remnant of Israel must call out for Jesus before he returns. If there is no remnant of Jews, they cannot possibly call out to Jesus. And I believe this is Satan's line of thinking. And in some way, I believe that Satan thinks he will be, in some twisted way, vindicated if he can stop this from happening, the Jews calling out to Christ to come back. If he can spoil that piece of God's word, I think that he will feel somewhat vindicated. Now, we know that he will never spoil this, but we've seen Satan's attempt to wipe out the Jews in more recent history. You know, for one example, the Holocaust. If Satan can wipe out the Jews, this prophecy can't be fulfilled. The Holocaust of Nazi Germany wiped out about one in every three Jews. But the next Holocaust will take out two of three Jews. And that is the tribulation. The Jews are targeted, and Satan tries to wipe them out, especially those believing Jews. But God will always have his remnant. And this will come back later in our study. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And we've already mentioned some places where you can find the phrase rule with a rod of iron. So I want to take a second to look at the second sentence of this verse. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. This is classically viewed as a reference to the ascension of Christ. But There's another view that has come on the scene a bit more recently, as in like around 1914. And that proposes that this is a reference to the rapture. It's an interesting take on it. The word caught up in verse 5 is harpazo, which is the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and in other places in reference to the rapture. Harpazo is 
a forcible snatching away of something or snatching up or catching up. And it's not really what we think of when we read Acts 1, when Jesus was lifted up to heaven in a cloud. Being lifted up sounds very different to us than being snatched away. Now, the body of Christ will be snatched up in the twinkling of an eye. That is the rapture. And I believe it was G.H. Pember who came up with this reading of verse 5. He popularized this view that the second sentence of verse 5 could possibly be talking about the rapture. And his line of thinking is, well, the male child in this specific sentence represents the body of Christ. The male child being Christ, the church being the body of Christ, harpazo, caught up in the twinkling of an eye. And it says, to God and his throne. That does admittedly sound a little bit like the rapture. But I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not quite ready to take that interpretation of verse 5 yet. Um, I still side really with the classical view that this is talking about the ascension of Christ. She bore a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child, Jesus, was caught up to God and his throne. He ascended after his earthly ministry was finished to be with God at his throne. Now, between verses 5 and 6, there's an implied gap there. The entirety of church history is confined to this gap, the little space between verse 5 and 6. Because in verse 6, the narrative jumps to the tribulation when Israel is fleeing into the wilderness. This time period between Christ's ascension, which was shortly followed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the tribulation is what we know as the church age. And this is where we're living right now, the age of grace. And the church is not included in this vision for John. And I think that that's because this vision specifically is dealing with Israel. And information about the church in here would be confusing in the midst of something that I believe is meant to be understandable. I think that the Holy Spirit has left out information about the church for clarity. We are dealing with the Jews here, with Israel. Now remember the 24 elders, and we've seen them come up throughout the book, just saw them in the end of chapter 11. These 24 elders, we said, were representative of the church. And we see this gap between verses 5 and 6 that contains church history. Can you guess how many times this gap is found in Scripture? 24. Not to build any hard and fast conclusions on this, but this gap shows up 24 times in Scripture. Thought-provoking, if nothing else. 
Verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that she that they should feed her there one hundred that they should feed her there one thousand two hundred and sixty days. There's that same time period coming back up. I want to take you to Matthew 24. I would ask that you would turn with me to Matthew 24, verse 15 through 22. And this is Jesus's confidential briefing on the end times to his disciples. Jesus says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So we see some key elements that we can pick out of this passage in Matthew 24 and apply them to verse 6 in chapter 12 of Revelation. First, the abomination of desolation is the trigger that the Jews are looking for to flee into the wilderness. That's the event that's going to open their eyes and make them see that they have been deceived by the Antichrist. They are blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. But at this point, I believe that that shroud is going to be lifted and they will realize that they've been deceived. Jesus is instructing his disciples, and by extension the Jews, to flee immediately after seeing the abomination of desolation, um, when the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple as God. That's the trigger. That's what sends the Israelites into the wilderness. So we see in verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God. This is the trigger. And this abomination of desolations, we know from Daniel, happens three and a half years after he makes his covenant with Israel. And this happens to be right in the middle of this seven-year tribulation. The covenant that he makes with Israel marks the beginning of the tribulation. The three and a half year point is punctuated by the abomination of desolation. And that will trigger the Israelites to flee to the wilderness. Now, the abomination of desolation, of course, marks the halfway point of the tribulation, three and a half years into it. And that is the beginning of the period that Jesus calls the great tribulation. And that comes from this passage in Matthew 24. The seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, which we've both already looked at in Revelation, 
occur in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The bowl judgments, which we have not seen in our study yet, occur in the last half of the tribulation, what is termed the great tribulation. And there is an allusion in the last part of that passage in Matthew, verse 22, there's an allusion to the elect Jews that will be delivered through the tribulation. But for the elect's sake, that is those elect Jews, those days will be shortened. Back to verse 6 in chapter 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So this is that same designation of three and a half years. I mentioned it last week, but the Bible uses a prophetic year of 360 days. A little bit different than our current understanding of 365 days. So if you take 360 days as the year, you can multiply that by three and a half. You'll come to 1,260 days or 42 months. And that's another designation that the scripture uses for the same time period. It says that the Jews will be sustained by God for the last three and a half years of the tribulation in the wilderness. And of course, we know that God's already sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. So three and a half more won't be much of a problem. Verse seven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Isaiah 14 tells of Satan's initial fall. But I believe these verses in Revelation speak of a subsequent rebellion. And it's probably around this halfway point of the tribulation that this occurs. And it's no wonder that Satan hates the book of Revelation because it lays out his demise. It tells everybody what's going to happen to him. And I think that this is why he seeks to confuse the book of Revelation so much. Makes people believe, before they even dig into it, that it's shrouded in mystery, that there's no way we can, quote, crack the code of Revelation, when really it is literally the unveiling, the apocalypsis. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's not the unveiling of the end times, like many think, although there are those elements in it. It is at its very core, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It shows us the plan that Jesus has. And it shows us who he is. He is the conqueror. 
in his first advent, when he came to the world as a human, as a baby in a manger, he came, one, in peace. He came in humility. But the second time, he will come as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come as a conqueror. And this shows us that side of Jesus. Back to our text. It's not like Satan can change anything that's laid out in the book of Revelation. It's not like he can change the beast number to 677. He can't change it to 214. The number of the beast will be 666, whether he likes it or not. It's not like he can stop something that's already laid out by God. The Antichrist will break his covenant at the three and a half year mark. That will happen. Satan has no control over that. But he does have a leash. He is afforded some power and some leverage at the moment. Now, it says that a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Michael is the archangel, and he's the only one in the Bible. There are some traditional Jewish sources that point to there being seven archangels, but the Bible only mentions one, that is Michael. And sometimes you'll see in more cartoon-esque depictions of Satan and Jesus, you'll see them face-to-face, kind of like a face-off, like they're equal. But that is very, very far from reality. Satan and Jesus are not equals. The closer estimation, we'll say, is Michael and Satan. Michael the archangel is much closer in relative power to Satan. And Jesus created both of them. Jesus is so far above both of them, it wouldn't even be a fair fight if Satan was fighting Jesus. And we'll see that fight take place. Um, It doesn't end well for Satan. So Michael and his angels come against Satan and his angels. But Satan and his crew did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. You'll notice that it says that there wasn't a place found in heaven for them any longer. That means that they did have access to heaven at one point during history. And you'll see in Job 1 next week um, that Satan does in fact have access to God in heaven. And he petitions certain things to God in heaven with his crew. But at this point, and we are approaching this as a subsequent rebellion of Satan, you will see that there is no place found for him in heaven any longer. So at this point, he is cast out of heaven permanently, and he is relegated to the earth. 
verse 9 says that the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I've said it before, but the earth is going to be a very supernatural place during the tribulation. It's going to be wild, wild and wacky. It seems that Satan is literally going to be cast down from the heavens to the earth at this point, and his angels with him. And this seems to be backed up by verse 12, when this loud voice from heaven says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. And that also seems to be speaking literally. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Verses 10 through 12 is one of my favorite passages from Revelation and one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And I tend to reference it pretty often in our studies. I think it's very informative for us. Now, there is some question as to who this speaker is. It says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. The question is, is this a man speaking or is this an angel speaking? And some will say that it can't be an angel because he refers to Christians as brethren. Okay, but in Revelation 19, verse 10, the angel there said, I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Interesting. So I am currently open to either possibility. I'm not convinced that this is a man, but I'm not convinced that it's an angel, though I would tend to lean more towards an angel. That's my personal bent. But it is well established that this speaker is talking about Christians, the brethren. And the accuser of our brethren is obviously a reference to Satan, who accused them before our God day and night. But luckily for us who are accused, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus speaks on our behalf, and he acts as our lawyer at the throne room of the Father. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And what a reason that is to rejoice. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That word for accuser is categoros. And this is where we get our word categorize. This word also deals with the courtroom 
It has some usages in this context, meaning a complaint at law, an accusation. This is how Satan accuses us. And he's smart because he knows that even we love to categorize our lives. Well, you know, I did pretty good not flipping out in traffic today. A plus on that. But I need to work on talking to my wife a little bit sweeter. Maybe I didn't do too good on that today. And you really get down on yourself. Like, man, I did great in this category. But in this category, I really messed it up. And Satan uses that. He loves to play categories with us. And that is something that we can overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Satan goes to God and says, all right, he did do pretty good on that, but look over here. Look at this part of his life. He's really messing it up right here. Jesus, our advocate with the Father, steps in and says, yeah, he did mess up there, but it's covered. It's covered by my blood that I've already shed on his behalf. You can put that one on my account, and it's already settled. That is the exchange that's happening in heaven day and night. Satan is constantly accusing us of our wrongdoings, and Jesus is right there to say, yep, but it's covered. That's the picture that we have. Who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they, the believers, overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb, of course, that sacrificial offering that was poured out on the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ and the word of their testimony. Their testimony in Jesus Christ. It all comes back to Jesus. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Romans 8.34 Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And in verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea! For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time What an evil time this will be. 
woe to the inhabitants of the earth seems to be a really good way to put it. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Satan knows that his days are numbered. He has but a finite number of days to get at us. And even today, he's sitting on pins and needles, waiting for the last of the Gentiles to be saved, which will start this whole timeline unfolding. Romans 11.25 reminds us that there will be a time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that is to say that there is a definite number of souls who will be saved before God begins to deal with Israel again. We don't know that number, and neither does Satan. He doesn't know if the next man to be saved will be the last of that number. It's like there's some kind of a clicker in heaven, and God's clicking away on this. And there is a number which will trigger the next event when God will again turn his focus towards Israel. (laughs) Satan doesn't know what number that clicker is coming towards. When people ask if I think the Antichrist is alive today, they're sometimes surprised when I say yes. Now, if Satan doesn't know when his man will be up to bat, He has to have someone on deck in every generation. He doesn't know when the fullness of the Gentiles will finally come in. He's got to have his man ready. And so it seems likely that he's got someone on deck. And throughout history, we've seen some people who might have been that guy who have tried to step up to the plate, but they've been prevented from fulfilling that role of the Antichrist in some form or fashion. So I think it's likely that Satan does have someone in our generation, likely alive today, that's ready to assume that position, but he doesn't know when the time for his guy to step up will be. I'm not convinced that we as Christian will ever see this man in his prime. In fact, I would say that we probably won't. But every time that someone gets saved, I imagine Satan winces a little bit because he doesn't know when that last one will be clicked. He's on pins and needles. So if you take that to its logical end, if you haven't accepted Christ yet, you could be holding us all back. So accept Christ. It's time. Let's get on with it. But for real, verses 10 through 12, one of my favorite passages in the entirety of scripture, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. 
As we go into this next week, I want you to be encouraged. And I want you to be a good witness because your actions could lead to the last Gentile coming in. And we could all be well on our way out of here. Um, But for now, we remain steadfast. We proclaim this testimony that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. Man, what a wonderful testimony it is. You know, we hear different flavors of testimonies. We hear some people say, well, man, I was just awful. I had a heroin needle in each arm. I was rolling down the street, you know, just going wild. And I came to a point I was at my absolute rock bottom. I turned to Jesus Christ, and he turned my life around. And that's a fairly common testimony. And then you hear a testimony like mine. Oh, I grew up in the church and had great parents and loved the Lord and still serving him. You think, well, am I really saved? Because that testimony doesn't look like his. Maybe I need to go back and do some bad stuff and then come back. Maybe then I'll be saved. But that's not the point of a testimony. At its very core, every testimony is the same. Just because I grew up in church doesn't mean I was any more headed for heaven than the next guy. Just because you were an addict on the street doesn't mean that you're any less headed for heaven than somebody who grew up in the church. Everybody is born a sinner. And there's only one way to remedy that. That is the blood of Christ. Every testimony is that. I was once a sinner. I was wretched and I was headed for hell. And I came to know Christ. He turned my life around and I was saved by his blood. That is the testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Let's close our study in a word of prayer this morning. Thank mm-hmm. you.